This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take, take, take it anymore. Take it anymore. Take it anymore. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast, ladies and gentlemen, for Sunday, August the 14th. Tonight's not an angry show, nothing to get mad about. We will delve into some strange uh, items, however. Uh, Coming up at uh, 12 midnight, uh, Jay Widener, documentary filmmaker Jay Widener, will be here to discuss his new film, Kubrick's Odyssey. If you're a fan of Stanley Kubrick, the the late, great, legendary uh, British director... Some may say that one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Uh, You'll know him, of course, from such films as 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, A Clockwork Orange, The Shining, and Eyes Wide Shut. Well, he apparently placed symbols and hidden anecdotes into his films that tell a rather different story than the films appear to be saying. And... uh, the, 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 the story of Kubrick's Odyssey is, is sort of coming out in a series. And the first one, part one, is called Kubrick and Apollo. And uh, uh, Jay uh, Widener, who's also an author, uh, in, uh, in part one, uh, Kubrick and Apollo, presents some rather compelling evidence that shows Stanley Kubrick directed the Apollo moon landings. And our good friends down at Conspiracy Culture... Patrick White and Kadena are actually presenting Kubrick's Odyssey, Part 1, uh, Saturday the 20th at 9.30 p.m. And um, Jay will be there via Skype, I see. Okay, so he'll be there via Skype doing a Q&A. And uh, that's uh, playing at the... It's a brand new venue for uh, a conspiracy culture, the Toronto Underground Cinema at uh, Queen and Spadina. I'll mention that again before the show is over. Uh, Coming up a little bit later, just before midnight, the return of our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. The last time uh, she was scheduled to be on, I was uh, just outside Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, doing the show via Skype myself, and uh, we sort of lost contact. So anyway, Rosemary's back with us. Just returned from the E. Seti Ranch out in uh, Trout Lake in Washington State, and uh, she'll tell us uh, what's going on out there. Apparently, she'll explain more, but there's some sort of a connection between UFOs and Bigfoot. 
And apparently they all come together quite nicely in a neat little package out there at the East City Ranch. Rosemary Ellen Kiley. Uh, first of all, though, uh, Sometimes the calendar calendar doesn't cooperate exactly, but uh, we are uh, here on the 14th doing my regular Sunday night show, two days away, of course, from the anniversary of the death of Elvis Presley, August 16th, 1977, found face down in the shag carpeting of his uh, master suite, his bathroom upstairs at Graceland. Uh, dead of an apparent heart attack, although the legend lives on that he has not left the building. And I have to be honest with you, for a number of years, uh, when there was some rumors speculating, even uh, a Fox News television station in Cleveland uh, did a series of reports suggesting that Elvis may in fact be alive, living under the name of Jesse Guerin Presley, and uh, supposedly there was DNA evidence uh, to, uh, to, uh, to, to prove that. Uh, then we had the, the case of uh, a Dr. Hinton, a, a medical doctor down in Independence, Missouri, I believe, who uh, claimed he was treating this same Jesse Garen Presley for an, un, un, an un, undisclosed illness or series of illnesses. Uh, and so this was happening in the early 2000s, and there was a lot of, a lot of interesting information coming out. And I I have to say to you, in all honesty, I thought there was a distinct possibility that Elvis Presley might still be alive, perhaps living uh, under an assumed name in a witness relocation program. However, we are going to uh, uh, to uh, unravel the, the the Elvis mystery tonight for you, uh, perhaps once and for all. And to do so, I have enlisted uh, two individuals, certainly in the know, uh, a rock and roll investigator, Par excellence, he's a dear friend of the program, and uh, we'll welcome him aboard first. Gary Patterson, welcome to The Conspiracy Show once again, my friend. Are you there, Gary? Gary is not there. All right, let's try for uh, our next guest, who is uh, the author of Elvis Decoded, a fan's guide to deciphering the myths and misinformation. And uh, he's a gentleman that I actually had the, the great pleasure of meeting just uh, a few weeks back down in uh, Virginia. Uh, Patrick Lacey, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Are you there? No, Patrick's not ready to go. All right, why don't we take a, a timeout and uh, we'll come back and uh, have our guests all lined up and ready to go. Elvis, the mystery explained. A paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and the secret messages in the films of Stanley Kubrick. When we come back here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. And welcome back, and we are ready to delve into the Elvis mystery. Uh, perhaps for the last time, perhaps it's time to close the books on this chapter, and I couldn't think of uh, uh, two people uh, better to help me do that than the great rock and roll investigator, the author of... Well, this is the guy that really kicked off the whole, um, um, you know, Paul is dead, uh, you know, sort of 
putting that to rest, the whole Paul McCartney is dead rumors that took off in the late 1960s with his monumental work, uh, The Walrus, um, is Paul. And uh, Paul, The Walrus was Paul, rather. And uh, he uh, continued that on with um, a really uh, a runaway bestseller, which uh, is in its, presence, in its present form is Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and Curses. And I speak, of course, than uh, none other than our Gary Patterson. Gary, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing great, Richard. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, when last we spoke, we were sharing some pulled pork sandwiches down in uh, in Nashville. Yes, and it was a, it was a great time. I thought, man, I, you're just going to have to come down where you have to spend more time together. I know. It, we were on the run, and we didn't really have uh, as much time as I would have liked. But uh, And, man, that was hot. What was it, about 108 degrees or something? <laughs> Yeah, and uh, 100% humidity. So. Oh, that was something else. Yeah, then we went to Florida right after that. And when I got to Florida to on cool vacation, off. <laughs> Amy Wine, you know, Winehouse died. And, yes. Uh, she was 27, so I did all the radio shows on the news member of the club at 27. So That's right. It's been a hectic summer, my friend. I'll say. Well, let's hope it doesn't get any more hectic because we don't want to <laughs> lose any other talented uh, people. That was a tragic story, Amy Winehouse. Yes, yep. joining the 27 Club along with Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain. Was he 27? Oh, yes. There mm-hmm. you go. 40, right. There's 45 rock stars who died at the age of 27. It's just one of the most bizarre chapters in rock and roll history. My word. Uh, listen, let's also welcome aboard to the program uh, another man who's well-versed in the whole Elvis uh, mystery, and that, of course, is the author of Elvis Decoded, a fan's guide to deciphering the myths and misinformation, Patrick Lacey. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good to be here, Richard. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's just been a few weeks since you and I actually met face-to-face. Uh, just It was a, a, a stone's throw from uh, a great battlefield in a uh, Civil War battlefield in Virginia. It was Bulls, yeah. Bulls Run, was it not? Uh, that's the Bull Run area down there, yeah. Yes, yes. It was great meeting you. Listen, gentlemen, I, I, um, I was saying off the top of the show that uh, for a number of years, back in the early 2000s, I thought there was a chance Elvis may have, in fact... Uh, cheated the Grim Reaper, maybe faked his own death. This was about the time that uh, Fox News in Cleveland was reporting. There was DNA evidence uh, suggesting a man named Jesse Guerin was, uh, in fact, Elvis. There was the whole Dr. Hinton story out of uh, Independence, Missouri, claiming uh, that he was treating uh, Jesse Guerin Presley or Elvis, and they and uh, they wrote a book together. Uh, let me ask uh, either of you, and... and uh, um, as I say, as for a time I thought there was a chance. Did either of you ever, following the 1977, think for a moment that there was a chance that he he may have actually faked his death? Well, well, when I first, became an Elvis sorry, fan, Patrick, which uh, was in 1994, um, I, I I guess I wasn't really that aware of the Elvis is Alive stuff, even though it had been in tabloids and, and all that stuff for a number of years by that time. And when I got into Elvis um, and started reading about him, and I saw those, you know, ver- the various claims that we've all talked about over the years. Um, I thought that they made for interesting reading, mm-hmm. um, but there was nothing. I never thought that there was anything there. It was one of those things where somebody would come up with something, and you kind of scratch your head and say, "Yeah, that's kind of neat." You know, that's kind of a you know coincidence, or that's that's quirky that 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 happened that way. And and then you try to explain it away, but but no, I never never bought the idea. Um, that 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 he had faked his death. No. How about you, Gary? 
Well, I think what makes it interesting is I think the first time I'd ever heard the rumor, maybe in 1979 or 78, which was very close to after he died, I seem to remember Geraldo had something on television with it. And then I remember Bill Bigsby had two specials that Elvis is alive, and they introduced oh the famous pool house photograph and you know, from the guy who uh, followed the Paul is Dead rumors, I noticed a very striking similarity that, you know, the clues were in, well, you, you could say they were in categories like the totally ridiculous, and then you had some that were guided looking, guided listening, and then you had some that, that really made sense. And uh, when you watch it on the Fox network, and you watch Bill Bigsby talk through it, and they show the photographs, and, and then the bit about the conspiracy that, you know, Pat, can talk about you know with organized crime and he went entered uh, witness protection and i mean anything is pretty believable when it happens because you have all this information to sift through and you know some of it you have to discount and then you know some of the clues like if you take august 16 1977 and add 8 16 1977 it comes out to 2001 which was the opening song and that was when elvis was supposed to reappear and Pat may agree with me now. I don't think there's that many people who really believe Elvis is still alive. I think the argument now is that Elvis did not die in 1977, but could very well have died in 1987 or 1997. What do you think, Pat? Well, I think there, there, was, there was a couple of people who came out um, mid-'90s, maybe the late-'90s, who, who introduced the idea of Elvis having faked his death in 1977, and then actually, like you you mentioned there, Gary passing away. I think I think '93 was maybe the year that they pinpointed back then. But that to me is just an out. That yeah. that tells me that these folks wanted to invest their time and their energies in the Elvis is Alive thing. They wanted to appoint themselves as the leaders of this this movement, and and they were aware of all this secret information, and and they were the chosen ones. But then in 1993, if we pick that date, Elvis dies, according only to them. There's no other information about it anywhere. And that kind of lets them off the hook of ever having to say, well, Elvis is going to come back in 2005 or 2015. Um, They no longer have to produce any information about the conspiracy. They can just talk about the past. So I thought that, that that people coming out and saying that Elvis faked his death but then had since died um, was just a little bit too convenient uh, for those folks. Gary, you mentioned the uh, the 2001 space, uh, the theme from the Space Odyssey, which is how Elvis would come on stage. And in fact, uh, coincidentally, we have Jay Widener on the program tonight, who's um, just released uh, the first part of a series of film films called Kubrick's Odyssey, uh, examining the hidden messages behind uh, the films of Stanley Kubrick. So who knows? Maybe there'll be a hidden message in there about uh, Elvis. <laughs> but... Uh, um, what was it for you, Patrick, uh, that that led you into wanting to sort of put put it down in a book and dispel these these myths uh, sort of one by one uh, as you do? Um, I think it was just you know there's so many books out there on Elvis and there's so many different angles that people write about and you've got his friends, you've got his confidants, the people who worked for him, his family. There's just so so much out there. And after I fell under the spell of Elvis back in 94, I just started going through any book I could get. Um, you know, I didn't know if the authors were, were good authors or, or credible or anything like that. I just started reading. And I just found so much contradictory information that it didn't matter if I knew anything. I didn't, know, I didn't need to know which answer was right. I could just tell that, hey, if 10 people are saying 10 different things, 
uh, there's a good chance that nine of them are wrong. So what's happening with this information? And so over the years, it, it, the more that I read, the worse it got. And um, and then when it came to the alive uh, stories, um, it, it just I, I think it just got to a really sad point, like around the Dr. Hinton time, where where we've we've left the neat kind of tabloid claims that that make you scratch your head and say, yeah, that that's kind of a neat thing, where we've gone into an area where. People are, are damaging their own lives. Um, they're damaging other people. Reputations are lost. You know, Dr. Hinton ran into a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, he was a doctor, and he was doing that stuff. And he ran into a lot of trouble. And it just seemed like it got uh, really ugly. And um, dangerous isn't the word, but it became a very negative thing where people weren't treating it as an interesting area of conversation and, and examination anymore. It became these, you know, online wars between people. Well, uh, and, uh, explain and that who... kind of thing made me want to look at these closer and say, you know, we need to slow down and look at these claims and, you know, stop all the silliness and, and really look at them. Are they true or are they not? And um, so that was one of the things that motivated me on the, on the Aliver stuff to try to, to try to clear that up. Patrick Lacey, the author of Elvis Decoded, a fan's guide to deciphering the myths and misinformation. Uh, uh, Patrick, were people uh, sort of angry maybe when you came out with the book uh, that th- those that were still sort of clinging to the possibility, the faint hope that he was still alive, when you sort of unraveled the mystery and provided the explanations why the, the middle name was spelled the way it was on the tombstone, you know, the, the bit about the, un, the supposed uncashed life insurance policy and so forth, were they, did they sort of see you as being maybe a bit of a, a, someone who's killing the dream? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've gotten all kinds of nasty emails from people. Um, I've read message boards where people who have never met me uh, have dragged my name through the mud um, they didn't like what I what I was saying because it it ruined their fun. You know, to put it simply, if you're living your life based on this fantasy and what I believe is is a delusion, um, and you're doing this day after day, year after year, and and that's part of your life now. It's no longer a hobby or something that you do on weekends. This has become your life. And then when somebody comes by and explains to you um, that you're wasting your life doing this stuff and that everything that you're doing is wrong. Well, you're going to become defensive. You're not going to like the person who's trying to, to destroy. Well, no, let me rephrase that. I'm not trying to destroy anything. I'm trying to explain to these people that they're wrong in what they're doing. And they don't like that. And um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I've had a lot of negative comments about me um, and to me. But the interesting part of that, though, is that when people email me telling me how wrong I am and how stupid I am and, and they can't believe that people listen to a word I say, um, I'll often try to engage, engage them in a dialogue about it and say, okay, well, if I'm wrong, show me how I'm wrong. Point it out. Explain to me why I'm wrong, and you're right. And to this day, um, you know, all these years after the book came out um, and all the, the work that I've done in this, not one person has come to me and disproved something that I've explained about the Alive claims or come to me and said, here's where you're wrong, and we've had an intelligent conversation, and they've proved me wrong. And I don't say that as a challenge. I say that as an invitation. If anybody out there thinks Elvis is alive and can prove it, by all means, email me, and I'd be more than glad to talk about it. But nobody's done that, and I think that's very telling. Uh, G- Gary, you um, were uh, were friends with um, with Carl Perkins. You you uh, met him and talked to him on a number of occasions, uh, yeah. and he was at the, the the funeral. And you asked him point blank, 
uh, whether Elvis was still alive. What did he tell you? Well, you know, I had heard all this. This was around 1996, I believe. And the the rumor was really circulating after the Elvis tapes came out. And, and I knew that Carl and Elvis were very close. They were both members of the Million Dollar Quartet. And I was doing a Beatle convention in Nashville, and uh, Carl was there. And, and I had a chance to talk to him for a pretty good while. And I asked him, I said, Carl, listen, I know that you were at the funeral, so tell me, is Elvis dead? And he looked at me, and he said, Gary, Elvis is gone. And when, once he told me that, I had no other doubt to go back, because if you ever met Carl, Carl was like your next-door next door neighbor. He was a, a great fellow and a very, very humble, very honest, and I never had a reason to doubt him after that. Uh, uh, Gary Patterson uh, with us, the author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, uh, Legends, curse, curse, Curses, and or Myths and Curses, rather, and... Uh Patrick Lacey, the author of Elvis, decoded a fan's guide to deciphering the myths and misinformation. Now, um, either of you can uh, weigh in on this one, but I remember uh, maybe six months, a year before Elvis died, and uh, there used to be an insert in the in the in the uh, newspaper. Uh, it was uh, like a TV guide, but not not quite. Anyway, there was a, a TV questions and answers section, or an entertainment questions and answers, and someone actually wrote in and said, you know, whatever happened to Elvis Presley? And uh, the the, uh, the the answer uh, person wrote back and said, "Well, you know, he's been struggling with weight, and he's he's, he's still out there touring." And um, I was about twelve years old at the time, but now remembering it, it back in that, it, I suddenly realized that while he wasn't forgotten, he, you know, all these claims that he was if he had faked his death, it was because he was a prisoner in his own home and he was trying to run away from his fame. He had really sort of fallen off the radar a bit, hadn't he? Well, that, that's a really good point, and, and one that I, had, I was just talking with uh, with somebody about the other day, is that if he were going to fake his death, um, the, the the right time to have done it would probably be 1956, 1957, um, right. if he really wanted to escape fame. But if you look back at photographs of Elvis going into the late 60s, early 70s, um, he still was able to engage and interact with his fans. You know, he'd go out to the gate and he'd talk to people. He would ride his motorcycle around L.A. and also around Memphis. He, he, there may have been times where he was a prisoner physically and he, and he couldn't just go out and walk the streets, but there was also a lot, of, a lot of that time he was able to do those things. He was very much a, a man of the people in that regard. And if you're looking at 1975, 1976, 1977, um, his career, without question, was, was on a downward trajectory. Um, and, and especially photos from back that time period, he could do anything he wanted. So if if he were going to fake his death for that reason, uh, certainly 1977 was not the time to have done it. Now, Gary, he was only worth about $10 million when he died. So, I mean, that was a lot of money back in 1977. It's still a lot of money, but it's not like, you know, some of these stars and these celebrities whose, uh, whose you know, personal wealth is into the stratosphere. He was uh, certainly worth far more, you know, a couple of years later when he was dead. But $10 million doesn't seem a lot for the king of rock and roll. What, what happened? Was it poor management, or was, he, was his career just in the tank? Well, you know, I think his, he could still do his performances, but when you talk about bad management, you know, Patrick and I have talked about this. I mean, Elvis never did a European tour, and that was millions of dollars. And his handler, or his manager, Colonel Parker, got 50% of what Elvis made, and Elvis had to pay all the tour expenses out of his 50%. So 
it was no wonder that he was down to $10 million. Of course, it's like that famous quote that Jimi Hendrix had where he says, it's funny how people love the dead. Once you're dead, you're made for life. So after Elvis died, you know, Graceland prospered. Uh, Elvis Presley Enterprise uh, prospered. So, you know, that was one way to do that. And I think that there was a break-off with Colonel Parker. Maybe a settlement was made. But, you know, you talk about bad bad management, Patrick. Wouldn't you say that uh, Elvis would be the poster child for that? Um, yeah, I've, I've especially in the past year or so, when I've done a lot more reading on Parker and, and looked at uh, some documents relating to his management, um, I think I think that he should have been in prison for the way that he handled Elvis's career, especially um, in the 70s and from 1973 till the end. Um, he he was certainly guilty of overreaching, self-serving. Um, it, it really became it really became Elvis working for Parker, and Parker was taking advantage of any income means he could, based on his association with Elvis. Um, and I would say over those years, if you look at the side companies that Parker had going and the various deals that he had going, he was probably making, you know, probably 60 to 40 of what Elvis was pulling in, maybe even higher. And if you look at what he was doing back then from a managerial standpoint, um, there's certainly nothing remarkable that he was doing. I mean, I know that Elvis had a weight problem and a drug problem in the last couple of years of, of his life, but Parker never challenged Elvis. He never said, hey, let's do something you know, really crazy, and let's go make some money. Now, people look at the the Aloha special in early 73 and say that was a great idea. Well, yeah, it was, but that's only one. All right. You can't make a career on one, you know, one big decision like that that happens to pay off well. All right, and we'll come back. In the last couple of years of Elvis's life, he was playing third circuit tours, third level tours around the country in what really were almost backwoods coliseums and arenas. All right, and, we'll come yeah, back. What with... were ticket prices back then? We all went to concerts back then. What was it? You know, seven, eight dollars a ticket. Yeah. All right, <laughs> we'll come back possibly, with. We'll come back with Patrick Lacey and R. Gary sport. Patterson here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there; it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM seven forty. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Rock and Roll Investigator R. Gary Patterson, author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses, and of course Patrick Lacey, the author of Elvis Decoded, a fan's guide to deciphering the myths and misinformation. I guess the interesting, or the, the point that needs to be made is if Elvis, for example, were in the witness protection program and, would, and went to all that trouble uh, to fake his death, you know, why would then he allowed him, allow himself to be photographed with Muhammad Ali in 1985? <laughs> or uh, why would he be releasing, uh, you know, 
these albums or, or songs and so forth. That that part just doesn't add up, does it? Well, that's something that that is part of the logical fallacy that a lot of these claims have. Is you know you look at that photograph as it was taken um, of Ali and, and um, Jesse Jackson when Ali was leaving the hospital, I think in September '84, and um, so. Some people who believe Elvis is in that photo are ignoring the question of what on earth would Elvis be doing leaving the hospital with Muhammad Ali? You know, you get, these people ignore the questions that would help them, you know, really come to terms with what the, what, what the photograph is telling them. And, um, and, and then when the gentleman who, who is the person in that photo, was a guy named Larry Kolb, came forward and said, I'm the person in that photo, and he showed... Um, his, his the, the photo that he has the color photo which and and I think Gary mentioned the um, the Bill Bixby show he it was shown on that one and it's obviously him and yet if you go to any of the alivers now that is still um, you know part of their list of evidence that they cite. Gary, what for you was uh, the most you know in that in that period uh, in the um, let's say the mid nineties what for you sort of made you scratch your head and say hmm maybe maybe there's a chance what what little piece of uh, evidence or information that, that came out, had you at least for a second thinking, well, that's interesting, maybe he is alive? Well, you know, I mean, basically, a guy who does the research on Paul is dead, you know, you're, you're used to all this, you know, you're used to the the idea that when a public persona passes away, they have to be, well, they have to be bigger than just some common individual. They could actually escape, you know, death's grip. You know, that this would probably be true. But And, and Patrick would probably say, you know, that when he first heard this, of course, he came in a little longer on, after I did. But, you know, the rumor of the million-dollar life insurance policy because, you know, it's all right to fake your death as long as you don't cash in on it. So, hmm, why haven't they cashed that million-dollar policy from Lloyd's of London, which I'm sure Patrick will answer. And then... You know, the idea about his driver's license is still, you know, fresh. The idea of pictures showing all over the place. And then there was so much misinformation out there because, you know, Patrick will agree that it's a feeling of power if you know these answers. If you bring up new stuff, then, you know, everybody just beats a, a, a way to your door. And especially people who believe, because I have to tell you, I think that there is a major group who really are angry that people do not believe that Elvis faked his death. I think that there's still, you know, like Patrick gets email from this. Now, I hear people who believe Paul McCartney died in 1966, and the logical fallacy in that is, wasn't it lucky that the Beatles found a more talented Paul McCartney than the one who died in 1966? Because look at the songs that Paul McCartney did with the Beatles after that time. Like the whole second side of Abbey Road and Live and Let Die now, uh, probably say that, you know, biker like an icon, that might be a slip when you play it backwards. It probably says, I really wish I were dead. But, you know, some of the other stuff is just fabulous material from some guy who was lucky enough to be an imposter. So when you hear the clues, you think about it, and you'll say, well, you know, a million dollars is a lot of money. So, you know, who knows? But, you know, I always had that feeling that, unfortunately, Elvis was gone. And, you know, living in Tennessee and... And being in Memphis and being in Graceland, I mean, you just had that. I mean, there wasn't anything that really was strong, except when the media kept pushing Bill Bigsby and all these shows where they started bringing it up and more and more clues. And you'd think that if Elvis were alive, he'd say, okay, i got to leave witness protection. Yes, I fake my death. Now I'm moving to Europe. Goodbye.
Indeed. Uh, well, I mean, there is there are patterns, uh, as you say, uh, when Michael Jackson died, when mm-hmm. when going back to, to Jim Morrison, you have the 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 eyewitness sightings, you know, of seeing these people afterwards. And so there is a real sort of uh, a, a pattern. How do these things get started? Does it actually I've often wondered that, like, how does a, a legend or a rumor get started? Is it one person? How does it how does it happen? Well, in my studies, it's always one person, one devoted fan, someone who needs to cling on to hope. And if you're going to talk about Morrison, you know, when Morrison died, no one in the family ever saw the body. And even the Doors manager, Bill Siddons, when he went over to Paris and Ray Manzarek says, I don't want to sound, you know, really morbid on this, but Bill, make sure, make sure. And when he gets there, the coffin's already... Uh, the the top is already screwed into place on this plain veneer coffin, so all he saw was a coffin buried in the ground. So no one actually saw the body there. Then you have a rumor, oh, this guy looks like Jim Morrison, who just left town two days after Morrison died. So so maybe he faked it because no one saw the body. It's a pair of chaise, and it's pretty hard to, to be able to dig up a grave. And then the Morrison family, you know, uh, when they decided that they didn't want the body uh disinterred and brought back to uh, Los Angeles in 2001, and they pay a large fee to have a security system in Paris, and they pay to have the graffiti uh, cleared. And they and when you go to Père Lachaise, if you've been there, there's always two guards on duty around Morrison's grave. So after a while, you know, you get the idea that if Morrison had escaped that fate in 1971, and if he is living in Oregon, and, you know, whatever, I mean, how could he turn down millions of dollars? How could he not return to his mother's funeral or his father's funeral? I mean, I know the idea that he and his parents didn't get along, but but still, you know, a lot of that was not true. So I think it's the same fact. When Michael Jackson died, someone saw him. So they have someone who's a lookalike. You know, how many people dress up like Michael Jackson and made money off that? So it just takes that one little faint flicker to ignite this huge fire and then you have to go stuff it out, which Patrick's done. But, you know, that's the way it works, and it does follow a unique pattern. And, you know, with denial and, and people seeing it and then the idea of music. And the only thing I think Elvis hasn't capitalized on, he must not have very much material in the vaults that could be re-released because Jimi Hendrix is putting out an album every year, and he died in 71, six years before Elvis. That's true. Uh, Tupac Shakur has put out probably, you know, 10 albums since his... Uh his demise. Uh, uh, Patrick, why is that? Why, why, why didn't Elvis uh, have such a, you know, a, a, a huge backlog uh, in the vaults of unreleased material? Uh, it's, it's possible that he did, and that might, there might be more video um, than we're aware of, and we have to assume that his estate has a lot of material and that they, they can only let it trickle out because they have to look at the long-term business plan that they have going there. Um, you know, Elvis has been dead coming up here on 34 years. And so they're not, of course, getting new material from him. And his recording sessions weren't, you know, these long jam sessions, and, and, and they just kept the tape running and that kind of thing. And they've put out a lot of records where there are outtakes and, and alternate versions and things like that. So I think that EPE probably has stuff in the vault that, that will come out very slowly. Um, it's just that the fans are really clamoring for it now, and, and they're not getting it. Uh, Patrick, Gary mentioned, of course, the uh, the life insurance policy, which is uh, always held up as uh, key evidence that he didn't, f- 
that he didn't die, that uh, had he cashed that life insurance policy, Lloyds of London, that would have been fraud, and that's against the law. Uh, ex- explain uh, explain that. Let me throw out a couple at you, and you can just sort of hit him out of the park in terms of uh, disabusing of, the, uh, of these well, legends. Well, on that one, the, the, well, this, I, want, I want to also speak to this on, on a point that Gary made a minute ago, where it just takes one person to make a claim, and then it can pretty much fall into you know the legend and the myths and all this stuff. A lot of the things that, that, that pertain to the claims that Elvis faked his death are unsourced, and it would be impossible to source them. The, a perfect example is somebody says that Elvis was seen at the Memphis airport uh, a couple hours after the announcement of the death, getting on a plane to South America. How do you source that? You know, where did that come from? Um, and the Lloyds of London policy is the exact same way. It's uh, almost impossible um, to get information like that out of an insurance company, especially Lloyds of London, which handles a lot of celebrities and, and, and high-profile people. So it's not like you can go on the Internet and just find, you know, information on, on you know, medical cases and, and insurance cases and these kinds of things. So you have to wonder, where did that claim come from? Um, but to speak to your question specifically, there's another thing that people don't understand, and, and, and I've written about this, and for some reason it doesn't lodge in people's minds the way it should. In early 1978, Vernon received a check from the U.S. government. It was a lump sum death benefit, which is standard procedure. He took that check and he deposited it in his bank account. Now, that right there means that the estate benefited from the death. So you can now, it renders the whole Voids of London thing moot because we've now seen that the estate benefited from the death financially so that they would be committing fraud. So people who say, well, they didn't cash in the Lloyds of London policy because they didn't want to commit fraud, well, the lump sum death payment would be fraud. So that case, to me, is closed. And if you do a little bit more further research and you look at the finances of the estate after Elvis died, you'll see that money was coming in by the truckload based on the fact that Elvis had died and all these business loose ends had to be tied up and insurance uh, money was coming in, um, tax refunds and all this kinds of stuff. So the Lloyds of London thing is just one tiny little piece to this puzzle. It's, it's no longer valid because of just my one example, the lump sum death payment. But again, if you did the research and the Aliver people don't research anything beyond their own answers, you would see that the estate was making money hand over fist um, after the death. And, and, which, and this is money that would not have been coming in had Elvis not died. Now the um, the other interesting thing that comes up uh, again and again is um, is the tombstone the the uh, the misspelling so supposedly of his middle name Aaron um, which apparently Vernon went to great lengths to correct when it was misspelled on his birth certificate back in the 1930s uh, and yet supposedly uh, Vernon allowed it to be misspelled on his tombstone uh, as if it was some sort of a clue to his fans saying I'm not really here. Well, in 19, I think it was 1965, Marty Lacker tells a story about Elvis talking to his father one day and saying, you know, I want to start using the double-A spelling of my name now. And the story goes that Elvis contacted uh, the state of Mississippi, where he was born, and, um, and tried to, get to change those records. Upon doing so, he found that the records already reflected the double-A spelling, and from then on, he used that spelling. Now, you'll see that after that time period, he, he rarely, if ever, signed his middle name. 
Um, so it's usually E.A. Presley or Elvis A. Presley when he signed documents and things like that. However, there are names on documents after 1965, especially going into the 70s, where the double A is used, and these are on documents that he and his attorneys would have reviewed and signed. And that there, he's, I mean, if your name is misspelled on a document, you change it. You don't just sign it. And his lawyers would know that even if he didn't. So that is, is evidence to me that Elvis had was then using the double A spelling, and that when he died, Vernon used that spelling because of that and because of that conversation that Marty Lacker cites from 1965. Uh, Gary, there is a bit of a conspiracy, uh, if, if I recall, around uh, the death of Elvis, and that is that originally he was not buried, of course, at Graceland, uh, and then there was an attempted uh, robbery at the the cemetery where Elvis's body was at the in the mausoleum, um, and then it was suggested by someone uh, who had investigated this that the the attempted robbery of uh, Elvis's body was orchestrated from inside uh, the Presley family in order to convince the officials in uh, Memphis to allow them to bury Elvis at Graceland, and thus it would become this tourist mecca. Any truth to that? I've heard a videotape of one of the men who was purported to be one of the grave robbers that claimed that Vernon had paid he and another person to actually not steal Elvis's body, but to make an attempt to steal it so they'd be caught, whatever, because to have someone's body buried in a public, you know, in, in a residential area, it has to be rezoned. And uh, the story goes that Vernon wanted to prove to the city that they couldn't care for his son's body, that there would be constantly be people trying to dig up the body, hold it for ransom, so that they could much better protect it at Graceland. So, you know, Patrick, I think he, he knows the, the name of the fellow, but I will tell you this, one of the great conspiracies was... I was flown out to Los Angeles a few years ago to be interviewed in a movie that Elvis is alive or whatever, where they were offering $2 million, Patrick, as we talked about. And, yeah. and I think the film disappeared, and maybe somebody picked up the $2 million. What do you think? Well, I think the film is up for sale. <laughs> is it up for sale? <laughs> I think for $3 million. So that movie did not go anywhere. Yeah, uh, I, I don't, I don't know what happened to it. It didn't, didn't go anywhere. Um, but the grave robbery the, uh, story, the Patrick? The grave robbery thing. Um, Vernon Presley knew this, and the, the estate knew this, too. They had a lot of pull in that town. And if they had wanted to bury Elvis's body anywhere in that town, they could have gotten the rezoning done for it. No questions asked. That's how much power he had there. So when, Vernon, when Vernon's son dies and he wants to, they put him in the mausoleum because Vernon wanted the body moved back. So the mausoleum was intended only as a temporary hold for Elvis's body. When it was August 29th when the, this attempted whatever happened, and the body was then moved on October 2nd, the day, the, the, in a couple of days after this, the papers were filed, and it went through the normal process, and it was approved unanimously, and then the bodies were moved. So the notion that Elvis, Elvis's family and, and the estate couldn't get Elvis's body moved, and therefore they had to prove um, that it would be safer at home is absolute nonsense. And the guy who says that, who's Ronnie Lee Atkins, is lying through his teeth because that is absolute BS across the board. He also says that he met with Vernon to discuss this beforehand. That is a flat-out lie. That did not happen. 
So the stories, I mean, you can the, the videos are out there, and you can watch these guys talk about this. But it, it's just simply logical that it did not happen the way they they say because the the bodies were moved simply and with absolutely no resistance from Memphis. And the uh, the, the the Fox News uh, story out of Cleveland that I'd mentioned, uh, and it was a, a reporter, an anchor, uh, a, a reporter there actually with Fox News in Cleveland who who um, investigated this claim that this gentleman by the name of Jesse Garen Presley uh, was in fact Elvis apparently they sent him a, a DNA kit and the, and the DNA evidence that came back supposedly not only matched Vernon's uh, side of the family but also Gladys's side which ruled out because Elvis had no, no siblings that ruled out any of his cousins and therefore it had to be Elvis's DNA have, have you addressed that issue? Um, the only, the only one of the key points that needs to be uh, to be brought to the surface of this, not only that, but also the Eliza Presley and, and anything to do with this DNA stuff. Um, all of the tests that these people come forward with that say prove Elvis is alive or he's he's related to so and so or whatever, all of them are blind tests done submitted by people who we do not know, the public does not know. There is no evidence of where these, t- these DNA samples came from. There's no chain of evidence. Nothing was done officially. And here's, here's an interesting example of the way this is handled. Eliza Presley went in and got these DNA tests done. And then she came forward and, you know, to make the story simple, she said, look at the, the tests here. It says that I'm the half-sibling of Elvis Presley, you know, Jesse Garen Presley. Well, I talked to the guy who oversaw those tests at that lab. And he told me that she came in, or she submitted these samples, with little more than writing a name down on a piece of paper to identify where they came from. Which means I could take my DNA, and I could take Tom Cruise's DNA, or or my brother's DNA. I could go in there to a DNA lab and say, this is mine, and this here is Tom Cruise's DNA. Because I just wrote the name down on a piece of paper. When I leave that testing facility, I'm going to have a document in my hand that says me and Tom Cruise are brothers. <laughs> right. In other that's, words, the DNA lab... is what they've done with all this. All of it is blind testing with names that they submitted. Right. It's not up to the DNA lab to prove that the sample came from right. Elvis and Presley. See, these are not legally binding. If they were legally binding, the DNA, the testing facility would say, we have to handle this. We have to get the samples from the people. The people need to come into our facility to give them to us. None of these blind things. So none of this is legally binding. The fact that Eliza Presley took her case to court and was going to introduce the DNA, the judge would have, of course, said it's inadmissible because we have no idea where this DNA came from. So the notion that any of this stuff has any bearing whatsoever is laughable. And the fact that anybody, like Fox News, if they're giving these blind DNA tests any credibility and these people any credibility is is just jaw-dropping. It's hard to believe. All right, last question to both of you. Um, if Elvis hadn't died, Gary, to you first. If Elvis hadn't died, give me sort of his career path post-1977. Well, I think that uh, Elvis would probably try to get some really good songs again. I think that he was very unhappy with some of the material he had. I know that when he did the movies, a lot of those songs... I mean, this is a guy who was used to Lieber and Stoller writing songs for him, and uh, Doc Palmas and Mort Schumann writing songs for him. And and I think he really wanted a good song. I think he really wanted a good movie, Pat. And I think that, 
you know, that, that he was getting, I think I'd heard the story that he really wanted the role in A Star is Born that Chris Christopherson got, and he was upset with that. Yeah. I think that, you know, maybe he would have tried to push for something that would have uh, been better for his career as far as really great songs and as far as a great movie role. And, you know, hopefully that, you know, his health issues weren't so far gone that he would only had a few years left to live. But, you know, it, he had to have something that he wanted to go to. I, I don't see him as a producer. You know, I don't see him anything like that. I mean, obviously he didn't write a song in his entire career. But, you know, you'd hope that he'd have that fire to try to try to go out at the end of his career by doing something great that could make a difference. Patrick, how do you see uh, Elvis's career after 1977? Had he lived? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with with what Gary says there. Uh, one thing that I would worry about, though, with Elvis at, at the time of his death, was that he had become so. I mean, I think that he even accepted that by by 1977, he was almost a caricature of himself, and the shows were almost parody, um, to where he spent a lot of time laughing and joking around with the audience, and it was all self-deprecating and humorous, and the fans had a good time with it, but it was kind of like he didn't take himself seriously anymore because he knew um, the state of his own career. And he must have had a very negative outlook towards what was happening uh, because at that point, he, nothing was going to change. You know, As long as Parker was his manager, nothing would have ever changed. So I hope that in 1977, if things had gone the right way, somebody would have intervened and gotten him off the road Got him into a facility somewhere to help him get his to get, help him get his health back in shape, um, get off the drugs, and uh, and then from a creative standpoint, see see where he could go from there and what he wanted to to do. Um, his interests, I think, would have changed um, had he been in better health and had he not been forced to just do these endless you know mindless tours of the same set list you know for three years. Uh, do you think maybe he would have concentrated more on gospel music, uh, country he music, as he well goes? Have. And, and, and if he had been motivated to do so, I think, like Gary said, he would have sought out better material and, and you know, gone down that path. But I do think that Parker would have been the what would have, what would have held him back, and I don't think that his career would have changed uh, as long as Parker w- was working for him, or <laughs> Elvis was working for Parker. Yeah. Patrick, what's next for you? Um, I'm still doing research every day. Um, I'm not sure what I'm doing book-wise, but I've got a lot of stuff, a lot of irons in the fire. Excellent. I'm working. All right. Gary? Well, right now I'm uh, working on the elusive uh, television concept. Um, We're trying to put something together for a Buddy Holly thing. And then I have a company that I work with with John Hitchborn called uh, RoyaltyTracking.com where we find missing royalties for artists who've not been paid. So if you know an artist who needs his royalties, then come to my website and let's find you the money you so richly deserve. And uh, I'm still working on a book. I've got half of it pretty well written now, and I've always tried to update and add some some new stories, and uh, hopefully I can finish that by the end of the year. That's my goal. And 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 do that. But I think we ought to end with saying, you know, that it's a tragedy that Elvis died when he did, but just like all the great stars who've gone on, they leave their music, and the music makes them immortal, and new generations are being picked up on it, and as long as an Elvis Presley song is played and a kid has a dream, Elvis will live. 
Uh, indeed, and uh, thank you, uh, gentlemen, both very much for your time. It, it is uh, one of the, the sad parts is that, that uh, the music has been sort of overshadowed by uh, that that caricature that uh, he became, yeah. and uh, now, of course, you know everyone's doing the Elvis impressions, uh, and uh, it's sort of replaced, as I say, wearing the lampshade at the party, and. Uh, we, we tend to forget what a, a brilliant uh, musician and performer he was. Pa- absolutely right, Richard. Patrick, thank you for this. Gary, thank, thank you. you. We'll talk again. Thank All you, right. Richard. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator, back from the East City Ranch in Washington, where UFOs meet Bigfoot. Back with more. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. To The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Jay Widener, filmmaker, author, will be with us uh, just about uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes from now to discuss his uh, film, Kubrick's Odyssey, the first part. This is being released in installments. The first part is Kubrick and Apollo. And uh, this is uh, fascinating. It's about the hidden messages contained in the films of Stanley Kubrick, the late great British filmmaker. What was Stanley trying to tell us? Was he, in fact, trying to tell us that he directed the Apollo landing on the moon? Well, Jay Widener thinks so, and he'll explain in just a few moments. Uh, but first, great to have her back. We, um, we missed her uh, the last time around when I was uh, doing my show from a, a, a remote location, and we communication lines broke down, but we're, we're glad to have her back. Paranormal investigator extraordinaire, the author of 42 books, I think, we're, uh, we're at now and counting, including major encyclopedic works on just about every topic uh, in the paranormal, supernatural, metaphysical realm. And, of course, I refer to Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Rosemary, how are you? Uh, well, I'm doing pretty good, Richard. I've been at a conference all weekend in uh, Sault Ste. Marie. Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario or Michigan? Uh, Michigan. Ah, okay. Because we've got our own Sault Ste. Marie on this side of the border. That's right. Well, I never made it to the uh, Canadian side, unfortunately. You know how a conference goes. You're really busy. Yes. And um, uh, you were recently, though, out in, uh, is it Trout Lake in Washington State, uh, the East City Ranch? Yes. I uh, was there in July, and uh, I had never been there. I had heard that it was quite a UFO hotspot. And... uh, uh, that people see mysterious lights in the sky uh, just about every night. It's also in a Bigfoot corridor, um, and it, it is in a, what we would call a hot zone. There do seem to be a lot of unusual things going on. Uh, but I didn't see any UFOs. I was rather disappointed. Uh, there were a lot of lights moving around in the sky, but I think they were airplanes because they all followed the same track, uh, they came in in the same corridor in the sky and and uh, followed the same path. Um, and uh, there is an awful lot of airplane traffic in the area. 
But uh, nonetheless, people have reported anomalous lights. It's um, the um, ranch that belongs to James Gilliland is located near Mount Adams, and that area has a very long history, even in Native American lore, of being heavily haunted with ghosts and mysterious creatures. And they often go hand-in-hand with UFO sightings. Now, uh, how, I mean, how do you get an invite to uh, the East City Ranch, or can anyone go? Anyone can go. And, in fact, they do have accommodations on site. Some people stay in bed and breakfast in the area. But uh, the most of the sky watching is done on the weekends. Uh, however, you can book uh, during the week as well. And it's um, very informal. Uh, you can uh, come in at about dusk, and people gather out in a viewing area. And uh, you can stay up all night or stay as long as you want. Um, James points out the lights that he thinks are um, anomalous lights in the sky. And um, some people go off into the, the surrounding woods. Uh, you can walk out in the woods a bit. And, uh, you know, they hope to have encounters with something. Um, people have reported uh, moving orbs and uh, fairy uh, presences and uh, Native American presences as well. But what intrigued me was the fact that we were right on the doorstep of, of one of the major uh, Bigfoot corridors in the Pacific Northwest. And um, it's a wilderness area, the Gifford Pinchot Forest, which is designated wilderness. And um, there's such an interesting correlation between Bigfoot and UFOs, where one is seen, the other is seen. And uh, researchers have speculated for a long time on what's the meaning of that. Are, are the ETs in league with Bigfoot, or are, are Bigfoot working for the ETs? Are they a kind, kind of ET? Nobody really knows. But the incidence of the two going hand-in-hand hand is too high to be ignored. This sounds like a, a possible book, uh, uh, Rosemary. I mean, have, are you... I mean, how much have you investigated this phenomenon? Have you talked to a number of people who have seen Bigfoots and UFOs at the same time? Well, I have. And, uh, and one of the frustrating things, Richard, is that you often can't get people in one camp to be interested in the other camp. Uh, the UFO people, a lot of them really don't care about Bigfoot because they're all oriented to the ETs and to craft. Uh, and the Bigfoot people, most of those researchers are looking for a hidden Earth species, not anything paranormal or supernatural or interdimensional. So um, there's a lot of, I think, cross-correlating data that falls through the cracks. Now, fortunately, more researchers on both sides are um, taking some interest. But I remember some years ago, um, I was, I've been out on Bigfoot expeditions, uh, and I've got one coming up in about three weeks in Pennsylvania, but uh, I was talking to um, a researcher who had outfitted a van in the most sophisticated surveillance gear. He had a Bigfoot sighting, and he was trying very hard to capture video or photographic evidence, and he would go out and night after night and see all this mysterious aerial activity going on, UFO activity, and he would capture it on his video camera. But he wasn't interested in it, so he threw it out. 
He was always oh. interested in Bigfoot. Oh my! So there, there really does need to be more of a marriage in in all of these fields. And uh, I've just completed a book on mysterious creatures. It's for one of these state by state series, and um, this is uh, West Virginia. I spend a lot of time in West Virginia too. It's a very strange state. And uh, I did extensive research on Bigfoot in West Virginia, uh, as well as other mysterious creatures. And uh, I'm about to do um, start up a, a project on Mothman. Now, Mothman has connections to um, Bigfoot corridors as well, and also to werewolves and dogmen sightings. Ah, okay. So these, these things get very intriguing the deeper you go into them. Well, your your best guess, what might the connection be between UFOs and Bigfoot? Well, it could very well be that that um, here here's one thing that I have thought of: if if the ETs know where the doorways are between dimensions, and I do think we're dealing with interdimensional entities, not off planet. I agree with you. I think. If they know where those doorways are, and I think a, a, a lot of entities who visit us do, they do it deliberately, they could create an opening that then becomes opportunistic for something like Bigfoot. Because the, the characteristics of, of Bigfoot are that they, they seem to like to come into our side and graze around. They look for food. Uh, they've been seen fishing and eating salmon. They, they seem to like berries a lot. Um, they will forage on this side, and so it, it could be sort of a piggyback thing going on. Hmm. I've heard of uh, Bigfoot mentioned in association with um, uh, Hollow Earth, uh, that uh, these uh, creatures may, may uh, come out of uh, caves that are actually entrances into the inner Earth. Have you heard that theory? I have, and, you know, that ties also into the gin. Because the djinn like caves, and they like tunnels. Um, and uh, the reptilians also uh, are said to be part of the, uh, the subterranean hollow earth and uh, access things through caves and tunnels. So one of the questions is, are we just dealing with different aspects of the same thing, or, or are all of these uh, separate entities that have their... Uh, their own pursuits and agendas going. Um, it's it's really hard to know at this point. So the uh, the mysterious creatures of uh, West Virginia. We'll, we can look forward to that. When when will that be published? That will be out in April. And um, every region has its own unique creatures. You know, Bigfoot seems to be in a lot of places, but West Virginia is, is home to some very strange entities that have haunted those remote hills and hollers for a very long time. And um, it was just fascinating research. What is it about uh, West Virginia? I mean, is that, uh, you spend a lot of time there, but I mean, would you say of all 50 states, uh, I don't know if you've visited all 50, but uh, let's say the lower 48, why is West Virginia sort of at the top of the list in terms of uh, cryptozoology or the paranormal? Uh, a number of factors, Richard. Um, the Appalachians provide ideal hiding terrain 
Um, and I think that these interdimensional creatures like that. They look for places that are remote, hard to access. And West Virginia is called the Mountain State for a very good reason. Um, there are lots of uh, coal mine tunnels in uh, the Appalachians as well. Uh, and a lot of folklore that goes along with those tunnels as, as access um, uh, points for the spirit world and interdimensional entities. And uh, there are a lot of negative magnetic anomalies in the state. And we've found an association between uh, negative magnetic anomalies in the Earth, that is, points where the Earth's magnetic field is much lower than the surrounding areas, these seem to be where a lot of these portal or hot zone um, uh, places uh, are located. And they could be these doorways that entities uh, learn to access. They know where those, those crossover points are. So you've got that uh, going on. And then the whole western side of the state is bordered by the Ohio River. And the Ohio River Valley on both sides, uh, of the river has a long haunting history. Um, large bodies of water uh, have high concentrations of haunting phenomena, and also US, they tend to be UFO corridors, too. Uh, I think that there's something about the ionization of the air or the energy generated by large bodies of water that also enables these doorways to come open. So those are just a few of the factors. All right. Well, we have that book, The Mysterious uh, Creatures of uh, West Virginia, to look forward to in April. And, of course, right now uh, we have The Vengeful Jinn, Unveiling the Hidden Agendas of Genies. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk next month. Well, I'll sure look forward to it, Richard. Okay. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, the website visionaryliving.com, our paranormal researcher who joins us the second Sunday of every month at this time. When we come back, Stanley Kubrick, did he, in fact, encrypt hidden messages into his films? If so, what was he trying to tell us? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Jay Widener coming up when we return. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett 
from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And you just heard that spot uh, before we came back in here promoting the Canadian theatrical premiere of Kubrick's Odyssey, Part 1, Kubrick in Apollo, presented by our good friends at Conspiracy Culture. And um, that is Saturday. That's coming up Saturday, the 20th uh, of August. And uh, the best thing, I guess, to uh, to reserve your tickets is to call uh, Patrick at the shop at 416-916-1696. And uh, my next guest actually will be sort of in appearing via Skype that evening and will be available after the film uh, for Q&A. And uh, that being said, we're happy to have Jay Widener with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Jay. Hey, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How did you um, get involved uh, or interested, let's say, in the, the films of Stanley Kubrick? Well, actually, um, my very first religious experience was when I was 15 years old and... Uh, my uh, girlfriend took me to uh, see 2001 A Space Odyssey. And uh, I knew that night that uh, the, my universe got uh, opened wide and uh, became uh, a bigger landscape. And uh, so I've actually been after Stanley for a long time, and uh, I've always considered him to be the uh, very top of all filmmakers because of his visual sense and his uh, his intellectual ability. So, um, you know, I've always been there. I was very sad when he died in 1999. And um, it was soon after his death that I began unraveling the uh, alchemical symbolism behind the film 2001 A Space Odyssey, which then led me into the rest of his work and uh, the uh, discoveries I've made since, which are generally are, um, are building daily, but the secondary discoveries after discovering that Kubrick had actually created a movie that described the great work of alchemy in 2001, I discovered that also he had been involved in the creation of the faking of the moon landings for Apollo using a technique, a motion picture technique called front screen projection of which he perfected in the film 2001 and you know I'm again backtracking and looking and seeing when I recognized the front screen projection in the Apollo footage I realized I had a really close similarity to the front screen projection work uh, in the ape scenes and the lunar scenes in 2001 a Space Odyssey and I began comparing them and talking to special effects technicians in Hollywood and reading a lot of books about uh, front screen projection. And I have the smoking gun, I believe, on uh, front screen projection being used uh, in the Apollo moon landing footage. I, um, my uh, evidence for Stanley Kubrick doing it you know, is circumstantial, although it's a, sub- lot, it's a substantial circumstantial amount of evidence. And uh, beginning with the fact that 2001, the production ran co-current with the Apollo program, beginning with the fact that uh, NASA, uh, top NASA man, Fred Ordway, was also the top scientific advisor on 2001, given the fact that the credits of 2001 thank all the same exact aerospace companies in the United States that 
Uh, we're also involved with NASA. And uh, given the fact that um, uh, that he left secrets behind of his work in the film The Shining. Um, and so that's uh, pretty much what the film Kubrick's Odyssey is about. First, I show how he did it and all of the evidence proving that he how he did it and when he did it, and then showing that he buried the entire secret inside the film The Shining, uh, most especially, uh, and I point this out uh, uh, over and over again, in the areas where he switched from the Stephen King novel. Whenever he switches from the Stephen King novel, he's back to telling you the story of his travails as he worked a um, worked a, a research and development project uh, called 2001 A Space Odyssey in order to figure out exactly the best way to make and create a vast lunar landscape appearance inside a soundstage. Now, I do want everyone to understand, though, I do not... And I'm not saying we didn't go to the moon. We did go to the moon for sure. There's reflectors on the moon. They left seismometers on the moon. Um, they're, you know, they're, they went to the moon. But they, what they did was they couldn't take the chance with everybody in the world watching that, you know, these astronauts might die up there um, very easily, in fact. In fact, the chances are were seriously against anyone being able to get from lunar orbit to the surface of the moon and back. It had never been done. No one had ever been done. Never, no one had ever been there. Furthermore, there was and has never been a, a soft landing of a rocket on planet Earth. Neil Armstrong almost killed himself trying to do the soft landing of the lunar module here on Earth. And so we can say that there's never been a, a soft landing. What I mean by a soft landing is a rocket coming down you know, with its with its behind on the bump coming down on the bottom with thrusters slowing it down until it makes a soft landing. But we have made six successful on the moon, according to our history. So, um, you know, it was it was a dubious idea to send people up there with cameras when uh, if they hit a boulder, even a small boulder, as they were landing, it would have toppled over the lunar module, and there would have been almost no way for them to get back they would have starved to death or worse died of radiation poisoning or fuel loss and then freezing to death or dying of heat depending because when you're in the sunlight on the moon it's 250 degrees fahrenheit and when you're in the shadow it's 250 degrees below zero and so there's a 500 degree difference um, uh... between the light and the dark because there's no atmosphere and so all these things add up to would President Nixon really want to um, to show you know this happening? And so they elected early on, I believe, in 1964, in fact, to have Kubrick film these as a necessary thing, just in case at the last minute they decided that this is what they were going to show. In the end, I think the national security state won, not the astronauts being killed so much and people watching them dying or something. I think the national security state had, let me say, serious kinds of uh, technology that they didn't want us to know about, and they wanted us to think that we had these Model T rinky-dink things that would putter around and could get to the moon and back and, 
it was really just a charade and um and all done to protect what I would know what I called you know the secret space program right right black ops yeah yeah and uh you know and they they chose Stanley and they chose Stanley because he was the best technician um that there was he was the one film guy the one guy who made was making films who actually understood um to you know within uh, you know to a genius degree what filmmaking was every aspect of it what what film ratios were what what what, what you could do with with parallax lenses and and all the the the, the little gimmicks and things that 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 you know only somebody who's really steeped in filmmaking could ever know he knew it all especially for his time and he was the man they chose because of that and he 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 knew i believe about the secret space program and in fact if you think about it in 2001 the mission to jupiter in fact while it is on tv and everything the real reason for the mission to jupiter is even kept secret to the astronauts that are on board and so we can see that he's always trying to tell us it's a theme in his movies whether it's 2001 or the shining or eyes wide shut that there's these secret hidden forces that are directing us and are pulling strings on us and and this kind of a plastic fabric of reality and that that we're sort of surrounded by and and he's trying to tell us this and you know it's, it's, sometimes it's aliens like in 2001 and and sometimes it's demons like in The Shining and sometimes it's Freemasons like in uh, Eyes Wide Shut. So it's it's very interesting the things that he's choosing and um, in different vehicles and and uh, the, the underlying story is is uh, well I'm going to be able to tell that in my next one Kubrick the Magician uh, which will be out in about six months which is going to be jaw dropping which is the secondary underlying story of what he's trying to say. How many but, uh, you know, how many installments? What I'm now is just the, you know, kind of the second layer of a three-dimensional chess thing he's doing. How many how many installments will there be ultimately, Jay? This is There'll part one. Three. There'll be three. So Apollo... Yeah, they're already done, and I've got some tucked away in a, a safety deposit box, and people have, that are friends and things have copies, and, you know, because I don't know how far I'll be able to get along here. And so I just want to make sure that the film gets out, but I couldn't release it all at once. I want to see what the reaction is to it and how far I can get with what I'm going to say. Did you and, Did you ever uh, contact... So far, it's been pretty good. Have you, did you ever get the chance a chance to meet uh, and speak with Stanley Kubrick? No, I, I didn't. It's, it's, uh, I would have loved to. Um, he died. Um, I was in the middle of writing my first book on alchemy and Fulcanelli, and I was in France, actually. When he died, I was, in fact, married on the day before he died uh, in France. And... Um, and uh, I was, uh, you know, really just struck when I you know, saw the Paris newspaper and said that he died, and and I was crushed. And and really, it was about uh, two months later um, that I sort of almost kind of received, you know, in one one three hour span on a Saturday, the entire breakdown of uh, of 2001 as as the great work of alchemy embedded and. And, you know, now I know because I've, you know, received, you know, letters from the family that indeed he was interested in alchemy. Uh, 
1999, the year that uh, Eyes Wide Shut, uh, that was his, his last uh, uh, film. And some, you know, you, you've heard, obviously, the uh, the rumors that um, uh, perhaps he was um, uh, murdered uh, as a result of, you know, sort of revealing certain things in that movie. Uh, your thoughts on that? Uh, well, you know, I don't know what happened. I know that uh, um, I had a, um, a, t- a long talk with a technician who worked with Stanley, um, I, he would not tell me his name, and I had to call him uh, at some payphone. And uh, we had about a three-hour conversation in, in, in 2001. And uh, uh, he told me that Stanley um, was, uh, he was worried sick all during the showing of the film to the Warner Brothers and uh, um, couldn't sit down and kept saying that, you know, the, he knew they were going to hate it and that it was going to be, they were going to um, probably not release it, he thought. And, uh, and then, you know, he was called in to a meeting with him and, you know, we don't know what happened except that he was told that he had to cut it, a whole bunch out of it, and Kubrick just wasn't the kind of guy that you'd tell to cut things, especially severely, and um, and he died, you know, four or five days later of a, of a massive heart attack in his sleep, and um, and we don't know, you know, uh, what happened. And soon after that, Spielberg um, suddenly um, managed to have one of uh, Kubrick's scripts for AI and managed to make that into a film. Um, but from what I understand, uh, the uh, script that uh, he had originally that he was going to shoot for AI, which was mm, possessed a lot of the original Kubrick uh, ideas, of which I will also release in the next film, um, uh, was for some reason scrubbed and uh, turned into a silly E.T. movie, and uh, uh, and uh, no one can figure that out, including some of the people that were on the production um, who said that... Uh, they got involved with the movie because of this awesome script, and they were terribly disappointed um, by the movie that came out. Do you think that, uh, I mean, what was Kubrick, do you think, trying to tell us about Eyes Wide Shut? Was he trying to tell us that, that, there, that there is this, you know, this, uh, this group of elites that are running the world, that are pulling the strings and managing world events? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, uh, uh, Sidney Pollack is playing a, a man who's obviously the head of this group, or one of the heads, and his name is Ziegler, and Ziegler is Yiddish for bricklayer, and a bricklayer is a Freemason. And um, the uh, music that's being played at the orgy is the uh, Catholic liturgy uh, played backwards. And the guy um, who, with the mask who orders Tom Cruise to take off his mask, he's, he's like the Black Pope. Um, it's some kind. He's trying to tell us that there's some kind of free Masonic um, reverse Catholic ritual in which sex is used as a sacrament, and um, that seems pretty clear. And uh, and so we don't know really know much, you know, about the inner secrets of Freemasonry, except we know that it is you know, brilliantly anti-Catholic, and where it was, I don't know if it is anymore. Um, outside of that, you know, I, I can't tell you. Uh, um, you know, it's obviously satanic, and it, it uses um, sex magic to um, suck the chi, I guess you could say, out right. of uh, people. And uh, the, the, in this case, there was women, um, and I believe that we were going to see it um, as uh, children in AI. 
Now, was there what? What have you learned about Kubrick's life? I mean, did he did he walk in those circles that he would have had firsthand knowledge of these sorts of things? It's really quite amazing, actually. Um, he um, when you start looking and you see what's happening, it's it's um, wow. <laughs> I sure wish I had been there. But uh, anyway, he you know he's he's it's you know it's 1964, early 64, and he's hanging out with uh, Arthur C. Clarke who's, um, you know, 15 years older than him and who is hanging out with um, everybody in the world that is uh, involved in all of the really um, interesting stuff. Okay, Herman Olberth and um, Werner von Braun and uh, the German scientists are coming through his apartment and he's hanging out with all the guys in NASA and he's a liaison, acting as a liaison between Kubrick and everything, but also, you have to understand that this is a secret space program, and Clark knows about it, and 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 because he's working with the people that are doing the secret space program, and and so therefore, then Kubrick, I think, found out about it, and he found and he became fascinated by German, anything Nazi and German, and and and, and he was obsessed, and he would collect all these German physics books and 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 articles, and his wife. Um, um, Christiana Harlan was, you know, German, and and she was she's the lady who sings the sad song at the end of uh, Paths of Glory, and she was a member of the Harlan family. Her uncle was a German Nazi filmmaker and the cameraman for uh, Lenny Reffenstahl, and um, uh, they became the producers of all of his films after 2001, and um, uh, he um, he. He be he had a 200 IQ and he began cracking the higher dimensional physics of the Nazis and he he's got German scientists and he was talking to him and Arthur C Clarke knew about it and he began realizing or he knew that there were they were much further along than they were telling us and so you know this whole whole thing became this kind of gee whiz thing to this guy. And I think he got further and further into this group until he found out, you know, that he got maybe even initiated into it, maybe, probably. And, uh, in fact, I don't think you can get into the secret workings unless you're a part of this Freemasonic order. And because I've talked to people in NASA uh, of the Apollo time, and every single person that was anybody at NASA during the Apollo was and is a Freemason. And same with the Manhattan Project, by the way. And so there's a, um, so I think he, you know, he, he was. And I think, I think that he, um, was he torn? Was he on the, into that order? And he found out the super secrets. Was he, was he, do you think there was an, a turmoil there where on the one hand he was, uh, to a certain extent, I guess, um, their, you know, their guy, their man in Hollywood, or their their filmmaker. But on the other hand, he he felt obliged to sort of let the uh, the great unwashed in on the secret. Yeah, I think that was what it is. Or you know, he was instructed, as some people point out, the this group has a strange predilection for having um, for building things that tell us the truth in languages that we frequently cannot understand. So they'll build a Denver airport or Georgia Guidestones or the Cross of Hende or um, possibly may even um, help Stanley or reveal information to him to see what he does. You understand what I mean? Yes. 
Yes. And um, I, so, you know, he's building and talking let's say, of the same things that are that are being talked about, both in 2001, um, which is really about the inner secrets of a um, of a high group of very advanced alchemists, and he's doing it consciously, there's just no doubt. And um, in uh, The Shining, you know, he's telling you the story of what he went through to, uh, to work with, with NASA, but also, you know, the story of how we are um, haunted by these demons who um, attack us when we become weak. And um, if you join with these demonic forces, you must come to understand that you will never be one of them. All you will ever be is a caretaker. All you will ever be is a house doctor. You won't be anything else. And it's, you know, Barry Lyndon is the story of the attempt to rise up into that and then being thrashed. And um, it, it's, it's, really, it's really the story that he's talking about. And once you add up and you realize that he's trying to tell you one long story, you can see that, you know, the, the, the rich people in Eyes Wide Shut are the rich people in Barry Lyndon. And, you know, the demons in The Shining are the aliens in 2001. All right, let's take a time out. We'll come back. Jay Widener, filmmaker, author. The film is Kubrick's Odyssey, Secrets Hidden in the Films of Stanley Kubrick, Part 1, Kubrick and Apollo. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And the man behind Kubrick's Odyssey, Jay Widener, is with us. Jay, two of my favorite uh, films happen to be Kubrick films, Spartacus and Dr. Strangelove. Let's start with Spartacus. What, what was the, what was the, the, the hidden gem there? What's the Easter egg in that movie? Well, unfortunately, Spartacus is probably the least of Kubrick's films because he um, he was brought on at the last minute when uh, Kirk Douglas, who produced it, fired the original director, and he kind of disowned it. Um, he thought the script by Dalton Trumbo was kind of insipid, um, but he did uh, direct the uh, the great uh, Gladiator breakout scene, and uh, the movie's kind of a drag until that moment, and you can see that. Uh, you can see that Kubrick, uh, you know, has now entered the picture, and things, at least visually, get more interesting. Um, so, you know, Spartacus is probably the one film of his that he really didn't have much control. So he was just the hired gun there. How about uh, yeah. how about Doctor Strangelove? Now, Doctor Strangelove is a whole other animal. That this is we, Stanley in full and complete control of everything, and uh, we begin to see the um, the, the really. Uh, 
uh, insightful uh, uh, look at uh, human nature and the uh, dark side of the military-industrial complex, which he was very much aware of and very worried about. And he, um, you know, he, um, he, he, he tried to uh, get the um, U.S. military to let him shoot inside the B-52s, um, and they wouldn't do it when they read the script. They were so uh, angry at him uh, because he was making fun of them. And uh, so he, uh, you know, he had to make the B-52s up himself by looking at uh, pictures from military magazines. And uh, he did such a good job that when the military saw the finished film, I think that's when they decided that this guy was so good that no matter what kind of, uh, you know, fun he was making of them, you know, he was still a brilliant technician. And uh, so we can see, you know, the, the message of Dr. Strangelove is, is pretty clear. First off, um, he's got the military... And uh, we have Dr. Ripper, who's um, clearly um, a repressed homosexual. And uh, everybody has sexually repressed names in the movie, not just Dr. Strangelove, but um, Buck Turgenson, who's uh, George C. Scott. And um, everybody has a name that is uh, about sex. And in fact, if you watch the movie, um, the, airplane, the airplanes are having sex at the very beginning of the movie. And, and so it's all about this sexually repressed energy coming out as uh, insane psychopathic violence, which is a, you know, one of his main themes, I think. Did he ever leave uh, clues elsewhere in interviews, for example, I mean, in, in, or in his pr- private conversations and memoirs? Did he ever talk about these things, or did he keep it all pretty close to his vest? Well, you know, he never did much of any of that. Uh, you can find all of the interviews of Stanley Kubrick on the Internet, and it'll take you about uh, no more than two hours if you're a really slow reader. Yeah. And uh, you know, if you're a fast reader like me, you can read every interview he's ever done in his life in about one hour. And was that because uh, perhaps he, I mean, did he just have an aversion to it, or was he being perhaps controlled and prohibited from, from speaking out because they didn't want him to reveal things? Yeah, I think that was the latter. I think that he um, he was worried, and I think that's the reason he lived on this big estate um, outside London, St. Albans, with uh, these big, huge uh, eight-foot walls with barbed wire. He'd drive around in a golf cart with a shotgun. I mean, that's what I was told. Now, did that I mean, happen after like when when uh, Clockwork Orange came out in in the late '60s, and there were um, uh, you know he 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 voluntarily pulled the film if I if I remember uh, correctly yep. he, he, because he was afraid of copycat crimes, and and he actually had threats against his own family. Is that where that sort of that paranoia maybe came from? Uh, maybe a little bit, uh, but he was uh, he he'd had the walls and the and the shotgun stuff before Clockwork Orange. Because Malcolm McDowell is one of the people that's reported it, and that was before the film came out. Now, you, um, you—I know you've worked with Paul LaViolette. Uh, I've had yep. Paul, Paul on the show, "The Secrets of Anti-Gravity," and uh, yeah, great guy. Um, I just—we're uh, uh, we're just finishing a, an episode for my TV show on on the secret space program. Uh, we yeah. didn't get to speak to Paul this time around, but we talked to Tom Valone and uh, oh, yeah. Michael Schrad and others. Yeah. Um, it is interesting, uh, uh, you know, that, that uh, you worked with Paul, and then uh, you talk about Stanley's knowledge of the secret space program. Uh, did did uh, Stanley ever discuss, or, or did he ever reveal uh, through his films, um, anything 
let's say, for example, that, that Ben Rich, uh, the, the, the former head of Skunk Works, hinted at, that uh, you know, we now have the technology to send E.T. home. I mean, was that a, a part of 2001 Space Odyssey? Was that message contained in there? Well, um, somewhat. The, 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 really and truly, I think what Stanley was intrigued by is the same thing that Arthur C. Clarke was intrigued by, which is this whole idea of this um, of this off-planet um, force that is somehow using us, and they're using us apparently to, I mean, to get our chi. If you think about the book Childhood's End, which is really the book I'm sure that Kubrick would have really liked to have made, but could never have made it in 1968 or 64 or whenever. If you, if you, I don't know if you've read that book, but the book is uh, you know, arguably one of the greatest science fiction novels ever written, and it's about uh, uh, an extraterrestrial force which comes here and it enforces its will on us, and in fact, it creates a new world order. And it hides and will not show itself. And then finally, after 50 years, when all the people that were of the old culture have died, they show themselves. And they re- and, 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 and <clears throat> I'm not going to tell much more than that except for the ending, which is that these aliens are constructing a thing in which all of the chi of all the children, the prepubescent children of Earth, um, is sucked out of them, all of their energy and their inner life force, and then the planet, and at the end of the book, the entire planet Earth is destroyed after all of the children have been, I guess you might say, sucked off the planet. And, um, and, and in this, we have the idea of the Gnostics and, that, and their idea of these archonic forces, uh, which um, are sort of parasitical, which uh, live here with us, and they um, they do not have our best interests at heart. I can put it to you that way, and I think that's what Kubrick is trying to tell us, and that the, um, they have a. I'll even go one step further here. He knew that they had a plan in which there was going to be a, quote, major transformation of the human race in the year 2001. Hmm. He knew it back then, I think. And um, I, I will present some, some circumstantial proof of this. And um, I think that's why he made the movie 2001, in which in the year 2001, there's this major transformation of the human race into the star child. Um, but he you know, may not have known what the dark secret transformation of the human race really was going to be in 2001, which is, uh, of course, 911. Ah, interesting. Okay. And um, that is that coming out in, in uh, sort of part two of your, your series? Yeah, I'm going to get the... I, I, I want to, I you know, I want to also show the, the bright side and the luminous side of Stanley Kubrick, but I've got to get, you know, this dark stuff out, and the first one is about Apollo, and the second one is about how he got involved in doing um, magic, not just, I think, on a, on a level with these guys, but on a level in, in cinema, 
and especially in, in the film The Shining, of which he's using, um, he's he's doing all sorts of things that no one ever did, as far as I can tell, um, which I don't think anyone has ever seen. And so it'll be very interesting when I begin showing some of these uh, uh, subliminal images that he's placed throughout uh, The Shining. Uh, what do you think Stanley would have made uh, or would make of what you're doing in your in your in your films? Oh, I think first he would when he uh, right uh, he would have uh, uh, um, uh, fallen over laughing. That's what I think. He would be absolutely overjoyed. Well, not because yes, you're able to finally to reveal the uh, the inside joke, I guess that he wasn't able to yep. do while he was alive. You know, and, and and by the way, you know, I, I really have to say that I I really think that other people know they're just not saying, okay? And because you know that the film Wag the Dog, Dustin Hoffman plays a guy named Stanley who's a movie producer hired by the CIA to fake an incident, and at the end of the film, he wants to um, take credit for it, and Robert De Niro and the CIA have him killed. Right? Right. And um, that was, I forget the name of the guy who did that, the film director, but um, he's uh, one of the big guys in Hollywood. And um, I think that they have, they knew. I think Stanley might have told maybe Spielberg or somebody and kind of got out. You know what I mean? Barry Levinson. Barry Levinson, that's right. right. And he, he, he was up there with those guys. He was rubbing shoulders with the same people we're talking about. Is that, do you think, is that the way Hollywood works? That, I mean, is there this internal struggle? You've got, uh, uh, you know, those individuals that are in the know that are trying to get the message out through their films. I often wonder, uh, for example, with the whole uh, UFO ET issue. I mean, we have two types of films that come out. We have, um, we have a movie like uh, uh, Communion or Contact. And uh, or these films where you know E.T. where the where the where the uh, the um, extraterrestrials are presented as uh, you know the spiritually enlightened uh, um, uh, civilizations, and then we have you know War of the Worlds. Um, so they're on the one hand they're they're trying to tell us to prepare and to embrace, and on the other hand they're trying to tell us to you know to be to be very wary and afraid. So there's this constant struggle. Uh, where we, the, the filmgoers, are both, the, I guess, the pawns and the prize. Um, I mean, is, is that what's going on in Hollywood? Well, I think, actually, um, are, have there been any nice aliens for a while? I don't think so. Um, so I think, actually, they're just banking on the evil aliens now all the way. In fact, that's their only villain, because otherwise they're going to be uh, breaking out of the politically correct thing. So I think with you know what what Hollywood is doing here's what I think I'll, I'll just be level I, I, Hollywood will make a film about anything uh, but the uh, archons they'll make a film about anything but this idea that there's this uh, malignant uh, uh, almost a spiritual parasite that's invading the earth and has been invading the earth and uh, and that it, it, it manifests as a hundred different things, always trying to deceive uh, everyone, because everything it does is just deception. And its whole purpose, this is really in the films of Stanley Kubrick, its whole purpose is to keep you and me and all of us in a certain kind of state where your life force can be tapped like a farm animal. 
hate to say that, but that's what I think he's trying to say. So these archons, obviously, uh, the one emotion that they perhaps enjoy the most or, or, or that satiates them the most, I guess, would be uh, anger, violence. Yeah, and they like to cause anger and violence through deception to get it going because they get like sexually titillated by it almost, you could say. And, uh, um, and, and it just excites them. And, you know, and people feel... And, and, and here's the other thing about all of this, and this is, I think, what Stan, well, why this turns Stanley on, like it turns me on, and that is this. You know, you, you can really kind of tell the truth uh, of history by that which is the most suppressed. And when you look at it, hands down, the Gnostics are the most suppressed people in history. They're... They're not only were they, are they completely wiped out as a people, and they were everywhere, all through Europe, the Mediterranean, Africa, but their books and everything are wiped out. And so you say, oh my God, why, why, why would these people be targeted like this? And then so you find the few remaining books that managed to get out, and there you have a dirty little secret, which is the archons. And then you realize that the Cathars were calling the church... The, that it was infested with archons. And so then all of a sudden, you know, a big army shows up in the south of France and kills everybody in the south of France just to make sure they kill all the Cathars who are spreading this story. And you begin to see that every time this story begins to be talked about, there's a very sudden, violent backlash. It's true when you start to think of a lot of movies now in that light, uh, you know, that we are on this prison planet and, uh, and uh, we are being deceived by these archons. Uh, every once in a while, a spiritual master gets in under the fence to warn us, right. whether it's Buddha or Jesus Christ uh, or Krishna, uh, to yep. wake us up. I mean, that's the Matrix, right? That's, that's exactly it. And, and that's the ending of 2001 with the guy in the hotel room that nobody understands. That's us. We're trapped in a prison of our own design. And when you hear the aliens laughing at the guy when he breaks the wine glass, that's what they do. They trap us, and then they watch us, and they tap us, and they drained him of his life, really, in just a matter of minutes. You know, people think that he got old, but did he really get old, or were they just draining him of all of his life? And, and, and when you see this, you realize that there's this dark undertone which we're, we're failing to see. And when we see it, then we can see the truth, and then the archons don't have any power. The um, the Illuminati, uh, or yep. whatever you know name you want you, you want to call them, and, and um, this secret society that was certainly front and center in in uh, eyes wide shut. Uh, are they in fact sort of the 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 um, the foot soldiers that are sort of doing the bidding here on Earth for the Archons? Is that your understanding of how it that's, works? That's what the uh, Gnostics said, yeah. And, I, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, everybody who wants to, um, every inquiring mind uh, trying to find out the truth of the human condition comes up against a very serious problem at one point in their inquiry, and that is that all of the texts that we're reading all of the things that we're looking at have all been botched and touched and uh, rewritten by kings and monarchs and politicians and priests and popes, and, and, or burned, one or the other. So it becomes a dubious affair as to what's really going on. Yes, we know our histories, but when we try to get into the deep secrets of what's happening, everything is kind of missing. So that's when you get 
you know, this is why things like the Nag Hammadi and the Pistis Sophia become important texts that have not been touched uh, since they were written thousands of years ago. And so I think Kubrick and Clark and everybody else was attracted to these things and began reading them and going, whoa, you know, look at this, right? And they're talking about these aliens, and you can just see them in their hotel room or their apartments talking about, you know, this with the German scientists who are all part of a, you know, this is another aspect of this whole thing. This, this Illuminati is really this kind of Saturnian brotherhood. And you have to understand that, you know, to really get it. And, you know, this is, you know, one of the reasons why Kubrick had to change the planet from Saturn to Jupiter. I think they came in and they told him that he was going too far with uh, letting out some of the secrets. And so, you know, that's another aspect of this whole thing that keeps reoccurring. You know, the Saturnian uh, undercurrent in this occult form which seems to be running our intelligence agencies and our politicians and the banks and everything. How did how did Kubrick uh, arise to such uh, a, a prominence? I don't mean just as a great filmmaker. I mean, he was obviously a skilled filmmaker. But how did he uh, get to be in a position to know these things? I mean, what was his lineage? Uh, why did he get tapped, if I can use that term? Uh, well, I don't think he got tapped so much as he made himself useful and uh and because he wanted to know more and it was through Arthur C Clarke um this is pretty much that's it Arthur C Clarke is the linchpin of a lot of these things he's the the axis that everything spins around uh, he's he's the guy who's designing satellites writing science fiction um is a sir Arthur C Clarke uh is um an open pedophile and uh um and advocates for the legalization of it um uh he is a um hanging out with the german uh scientists who developed the uh, original technology being used for the secret space program and finally you know he hid out in sri lanka because he like kubrick feared for his life i think because he knew too much mm. just, just, you if you could just talk to these guys you would find out more than you could ever believe and you know, I've got evidence that uh, from uh, people who have talked to Arthur C. Clarke, who are famous, who know things that they couldn't possibly know, but they do because they knew Arthur C. Clarke. Was Gene Roddenberry part of that uh, as well? I'm thinking, you know, the, the, the information that he had access to, all those uh, things yeah. on Star Trek that have become yeah. reality. I don't know how you know this, or that's an intuitive question, but yes. There's a definite link between Arthur C. Clarke and G. Roddenberry on any shadow of a doubt. I'm, I'm also thinking of the, uh, that great episode, uh, Day of the Dove, when the, um, the, uh, the, the Federation and the Klingons you know, momentarily put down their weapons because they realize they're being manipulated by, I guess what we now know, are the Archons who are trying to exactly. feed off their energy. <laughs> yes. You're um, helping me connect the dots tonight, Jay. Pardon me? I say you're helping me connect the dots tonight. Yeah, that's, that's what I try to do, is I try to find out, you know, the underlying theory. But I have to say that if it hadn't been for Stanley, I wouldn't have gone down these roads. I was more interested in, um, in alchemy and things like that. And when I broke the alchemy in Kubrick, it got me interested in him and, and a lot of other things. And then, you know, I got involved in the lunar bakery and things, and then I 
tell the truth. So, you know, he kind of initiated me. When do you think? Uh, I mean, speaking of Apollo, and and uh, uh, again to reiterate, you you're you're saying that uh, that we did land on the moon, uh, oh, yeah. but this was sort of just sort of a backup plan to make sure we had the the right footage. But when do you think? I mean, keeping in mind, uh, in terms of the secret space program, uh, we know uh, uh, from documents that the the U.S. and the British military were were on the fast track to some sort of field propulsion or anti-gravity they, in the late 50s, and then all of a sudden, just like the Manhattan Project, there was a complete media blackout on it. But when do you think we landed on the moon? Oh, I, I think, um, I don't know when we landed. I think it was in the early 60s or late 50s, but we had really good images by, I think, mid-50s. And I think by 63 or 64, we had images of uh, all the moons of Saturn and uh, possibly Jupiter and Mars. And I didn't say we had sent guys out there, but I think we had images. Do you think we have a colony on, uh, a colony on Mars now? I do, actually. Yeah. Um, I believe that there is a. I believe that is the purpose of of the whole thing. Is the the ancient uh, Piranha text talk of. Uh, a group of uh, people who move back and forth between Earth and Mars in gigantic arcs. And what they do is they leave the Earth right before a uh, catastrophe, a periodic catastrophe that comes every few thousand years. And they leave and they hang out in Mars until the catastrophe is over, and then they come back. Well, we, um, we certainly look forward to... Uh... Uh, parts two and three, but for now we have Kubrick's Odyssey, Kubrick and Apollo, Jay Widener, and uh, will be available after the screening, the Canadian theatrical premiere, Saturday, August the 20th, 9.30 p.m., presented by Conspiracy Culture, and that has the that's at the Toronto Underground Cinema, 9.30 p.m. again, that's 675, uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, a 675-person venue located at Queen and Spadina, so uh, get your tickets. Uh, you can log on to conspiracyculture.com for more information. Jay Widener, a great pleasure. Yeah, come see the film and we can talk. Looking forward to it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, my thanks to uh, David Gaskin for technical production. Uh, back next week, talking Bible codes with Arnold Beiser. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.